Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Greetings to all of you planeswalkers and spellcasters from all over the multiverse. It is wonderful to see you have walked back this way into the Unlucky Lounge for yet another episode of Draft and Draft. My name is Corey, your limited lore master and denizen of this local establishment where everybody knows your guild. Clearly, I've been listening to the Command Zone podcast quite a bit, but regardless, It's great to have you all back here after a quick week off. Do apologize to all of my listeners out there. We're doing a little life transition, new job, and finding a place to record in between such in a busy week's time was a bit difficult. But regardless, it's wonderful to have all. And with me as always, he's behind the bar, more than a 2-2 for 2, a vicious attacker, but an even more fierce friend. His name is Borak, my bear tender buddy. It's time for us to examine some iconic planes in Magic's history and see what they do over time. Are you ready, my bear tending? I had a feeling that you just might, but before we get into it, a few bits of housekeeping. First off, this podcast, as always, is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. Check out their content wherever podcasts are downloaded, be it Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. You can find them on their website, Believe.com, spelled B-L-E-A-V. If you're looking for anything to fill up that time in your drive between work or just passing some random daytime, look up their stuff. Great things from sports, entertainment, lifestyle, and of course, our podcast on Magic the Gathering. But this podcast is also found all throughout the internet sphere. Find us on Twitter, Draft and Draft Corey, on Instagram, my name being Corey Damone Enriquez, and of course, our Patreon, Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. Whatever brings you joy, whatever you want to throw out there, be it a comment, a like, a post, retweet, we certainly would appreciate it. Anything to help us keep the lights on here in the Unlucky Lounge. Well, the Sorcerer's Broom is put back into the Conjurer's Closet and on to today's topic. This all comes from the inspiration of my most recent YouTube watching. You see, it's flashback draft time to a flashback draft format that we talked about in our previous episode. That's right, friends, we're talking about the iconic, if not infamous, Zendikar draft format. You see, I was watching one of my favorite pro players, Luis Scott Vargas, navigate a red-white deck in the old Zendikar format. A draft video that lasted only 52... That's right, draft videos which typically take about an hour and a half to maybe two hours if you're playing a dirtily or controlling deck from his pick one pack one all the way to him top decking a nimbus wings to pull out a game in a damage race it took just 52 minutes of play and i thought wow number one kind of wish we got draft videos just as condensed for other formats but more importantly 
It made me realize just how strikingly different the Zendikar draft format was, especially when we compare it to other limited formats that take place on the plane of Zendikar. And so my entire episode today is based off of this realization. We're going to take a look in the past at old planes, see what they look like through different sets, different times, and of course, how we can look at them from two different elements, aesthetically and in a gameplay aspect. But before we get into our deep dive, our tradition must hold true. My planeswalkers out there, if you are done traveling, you're relaxed, you're sitting back, I want you right now to take a can, a bottle, a glass, hold it in the air. Let's have a cheers as we begin the untapped step. Ah, fizzy and satisfying. Well, Brock, you gave me a dent. Does this mean I get like a... T I mean, I know we're not at a grocery. Okay, clearly someone's having a bad day. No need to get so sensitive, I'm just... Alright then, we'll just move right along. Let's go ahead and talk about some of these iconic planes. Let's start, though, first where it all began, and that's the plane of Dominaria. Now, Dominaria has seen a lot of iterations, particularly in the early days of Magic the Gathering. Nearly all of the sets that existed in those early days took place on the plane of Dominaria. Think of it kind of like Earth in a sense of the Starfleet or the Federation. And throughout time, we can see a lot of it changing. We saw it change through the eyes of the Brothers' War, the Phyrexian Invasion and the Bringing of Wrath, Ice Age, even the Weatherlight Saga. But still magic in its days, the idea of block planning, infancy, was all starting to come ahead and begin to form that which the game is today. But I want to talk more about the flashback in 2018, the Dominaria set. Now, if you listen to different podcasts or Mark Rosewater, the insights, etc., you know that there was a certain tricky nature to how they were going to come back to Dominaria after it was such an integral part of Magic's early development years. What was Dominaria other than what Magic was when the game first began? So they had to set into the idea of what are they going to do to make this set seem familiar. And I love the way they hit onto it, the idea of the past and celebrating storytelling. The ideas of going through time and how time can sometimes change what things were. And what's really cool about this is they made that a very mechanical hinge point of the set. I mean, let's look at the mechanics themselves. You have Historic, which is a kind of keeping track of artifacts, sagas, and legendary creatures. Then, of course, we have the idea of the saga. The enchantment that builds over time. You're getting a large effect, but you're paying time over cost. Then we have the idea of Kicker. All three of these mechanics have kind of this interesting push-pull, not just in the way the cards are read, but in the way the game is played. Now, I'll be the first to admit Dominaria is an all-timer when it comes to Limited. Really fun set, but the reason why it's so fun is not necessarily in the mechanics, but rather in the way the games are played. You have this tension of when do you play the card, how can you play this controlling strategies, do you play your kicker card now or wait for value to later? Sagas themselves affect 
over time. And of course, the idea of historic. We're looking at these things that are so iconic and so legendary that you have to drift back into Magic's lore. Aesthetically, it's all there too. And I think what really helps it out is the idea of the sagas, telling the stories. I remember when I first saw the art on Mirari's Conjecture, that good classic, almost papyrus looking like, I don't know how to exactly describe it. Look up the art when you have a second, but it's got this really wonderful sprawling going back into this linear time. Oh, it's so stunning. And I love that the art themselves tell the story of what's going on in the past. So it is paying homage to the plane of Dominaria, but it's also playing homage to the idea of time and where magic has gone over the years. All of this is to say is Dominaria in itself, it's got this really cool historic feel. And we can see that now that this plane has more definition, that it looks back into the past, I almost guarantee that that idea of the past and how it plays into the present is going to be the way that we define the idea of Dominaria. But I just wanted to hint slowly at this plane, just kind of get us warmed up. Because truthfully, I think the 2018 Dominaria set was their attempt at trying to create plane definition, something that Dominaria lacked because magic was in its infancy. It was exploring mechanics and design and how the game was going to shape and look and change. So now that we have the baseline of Dominaria set in, I wanna take a look at some of the modern day return sets. That means we're going from the plane of Mirrodin and up. So speaking of which, let's first start with the idea of Mirrodin. Now, as I've stated before, Mirrodin was kind of basically the first block that really introduced me to the game. I started playing in Scourge, a little bit in 8th edition, and then Mirrodin came in, and the power creep of that set was astronomical and overwhelming for me. That was when I took my break. Everyone at some place takes a break. I think that's just part of the magic lifespan. But then as I got more into the game and my friends came into play, I would say that the Scars of Mirrodin block hit me in a completely different way. It put magic on its head. The idea of Infect being in the limited format was so cool. It was an artifact set where you didn't necessarily just have to depend on artifact synergies, which felt so contrastingly different than the original Mirrodin block. I mean, affinity for artifacts and modular just made things completely off the head wacky. It was insane, but now, when Scars of Mirrodin rolled around, we got this new way of looking at the plane that kind of changed magic forever. Not just because of the new card frames, but also the way in which the game itself was framed. The plane, the first one that we really moved away from, was so contrastingly different than that of the Homelands plane, or the Arabian Nights plane, or Dominaria. You had different creatures and different aesthetics, but now we're in Scars of Mirrodin, and the Phyrexians come into play. Evil meets the denizens of the planar world in this way that makes you feel like, oh my gosh, this entire thing is different. And then think about the way magic itself encountered the game. We were there in Mirrodin Besieged, and we didn't know what was coming next. 
Was it going to be the Mirin that won or the Fraxins that won? We had no clue. I loved that mystery element, something that would be repeated and we'll talk about in just a little bit here in this podcast. So just aesthetically, the invasion of the Phyrexians brought this looming and menacing feel over a plane that had such beauty in its artifacts. I just think of Glimmer Void, the art on that land, and that defines to me the way that Mirrodin looked and felt. That and Mir Enforcer, but that's just my own chip on my shoulder. So bringing this dark, almost oil-like oozing presence to this pristine plane, I thought that was an A-plus aesthetic knockout of the park. What great contrast from the original Mirrodin plane to Scars of Mirrodin and that whole block. But what about the gameplay? I alluded at it a little bit earlier, but in that whole design of the archetypes of the original Mirrodin block, you, you were just an artifact deck. But now, in Scars of Mirrodin, with the limited play of that, there was different routes you could take. You could be the Phyrexians in the Infect play. Some people, well, even today, Infect was so polarizing. People either loved it or hated it. I was in the camp more of I loved it. It was a different win condition, a different way of playing the game. And after you draft for a number of sets, some of those similarities from block to block, set to set, they become very transparent. You can only print so many black removal spells for three or four before it just becomes another black removal spell. You can only print so many green four fours for four before you're like, well, here's this one with this new set's variant. You can only print so many bears before... Okay, I guess I'll not talk about bears between sets right now. We'll save that for another podcast, but... Regardless, Infect itself, it added a new way of playing the game, and I love that it also impacted the way that you drafted the cards too. You had to be observant. You couldn't just step into an Infect strategy and expect to get it paid off. You had to see if you were in the open lane. Were you being passed a Cisbearer or a, a Tangle Angler? I think that's what it's called. If you don't have a certain number of Infect creatures, if you don't have a critical mass, you're going to put maybe four Infect counters on your opponent, and then you're just not going to be able to win for the rest of the game. I love that little itty-bitty touch that gives you this tension when you draft. Certainly it is a parasitic mechanic, pun intended, but I still love that it was a different thing you have to track. Same thing we talked about before in the previous episode with Theros and the number of colored monopips you have to keep track of. More on Theros later on. But also, Scars and Mirrodin brought to us the start of one of my favorite cycles, and that is the three casting cost red enchantment build-around cycles. For those of you who weren't around at that time, Furnace Celebration, oh, adore that card. It's a card that paid you off when you were sacrificing permanents. You paid mana and you got to shock things. That would be the beginning of my absolute adoration for red build-arounds. So, all in all, I think Scars and Mirrodin did such a great job both aesthetically and mechanically to update what we knew about the plane, shift it and change it, but it also allowed us to play into our old feelings and tropes about how you put together an artifact deck, how you might be able to assume your pick orders and the value of taking colorless cards over non-colorless cards, so it aided you in just a little bit while still reframing the entire narrative. I think Scars and Mirrodin did a pretty great job with its revisit. 
So now let's talk about another iconic plane, and that is the plane of Ravnica. The darling city of the multiverse, Ravnica, a plane that we've visited not once, not twice, but now three separate times. For those of you who have been around for these sets, which if you've played in the last year, you have because we went back for the third time, we know that this plane is defined by its two color pairs, the different factions that exist on the plane of Ravnica. And I remember getting really back into the game, getting my hands dirty with the second pack in the original Ravnica City of Guilds block, and that of course was Guild Pack, which is where I'm guessing my real affinity for Izzet and Orzov came from nowhere. I loved playing with these two color combinations, because back in the day, getting gold cards really felt like an accomplishment. They were the rare cards, the unique effects, the things that made you feel really cool when you played the game. So the first block of Ravnica, having all 10 of the two color guild combinations, was an absolute revolution. And then we went back and returned to Ravnica. I was over the moon, excited, going back to when I decided to make this more of a lifestyle game for me. And I remember playing it, and it was fun. Having a chance to overload your spells in a crazy nature just like the Is It League wants you to do, or going to the underground with the Golgari Swarm, or being part of the Legion of Boros, it was enjoyable to play those again. But this is where, you know, after a half a decade or so of playing, that you start to see the repetition. When you have a set so defined by its color combinations, by the shards, or the wedges, or the guilds, you start to get on rails. Especially when we had Return to Ravnica, and we had Gatecrash. They both had five guilds in them. What this means is, you basically have just five decks that you could really reasonably draft with some level of permutation. That's not to say that there wasn't some other fringe strategies, but truthfully, your strength was in making sure you found your right guild in the draft and sticking to that lane. I'll give a few little caveats for, say, the Axebane Guardian strategy in Return to Ravnica, which my friend Jesse will swear by any day, but I'll tell you, once we got to Gatecrash and we had some real aggressive shape strategies with the Gruul Blood Rush or the the battalion triggers with the Boros Legion. It became very clear that this was exactly how you were supposed to make this entire draft format work. You find your guild and you get there. If someone's sitting next to you and isn't also in that guild, then you get into a tricky situation. But you needed to get your two color cards because that's where the power was. And then we had Dragon's Maze. And boy oh boy, Dragon's Maze was something. I might define it as a hot mess. It was all three of the sets going Dragon Maze into Gatecrash into Return to Ravnica in a complete cacophony of craziness. You just had to find something and most people would try to put together some crazy five color builds that may or may not have actually paid off. I'll tell you what, once that set happened that's where the third set block really started to show its cracks to me. And it was fine, and I enjoyed the gate technology that we found that came out of the Return to Ravnica block. 
And then we get to Guilds of Ravnica. And it did the same thing that Return of Ravnica did. Two sets, each with five guilds in it, giving you a relatively limited amount of different decks and archetypes that you could possibly draft. It was fun to revisit it again, but we've seen it before. And they did it again with the same gate technology. Going from Return to Ravnica to Guilds of Ravnica, I gotta say, there just wasn't that much variance to it for me. I mean, I'll give a little bit of a thumbs up to the original Ravnica block. It felt very different with the Signets and the Karoos. Now, granted, if we were to go back and draft it again, I'm sure the cracks in that format would probably show up as well because you just were playing some really strange game that was completely different and quite frankly there probably just weren't as many playables as there are today. So when it comes to gameplay in the Ravnica block, I could take it or leave it. When I was starting and was getting my hands dirty and returning back to Ravnica, I certainly enjoyed it, but there's only so many permutation of decks once you have these guild archetypes that are laid into it. So when War of the Spark came around, it's a breath of fresh air. You get to see this plane that we love, the plane of Ravnica, in a completely different light in this story-based set where we're getting planeswalkers in every pack. It's so weird, it's so strange, and I adored it. But I will say, if we look into the guilds of Ravnica, that whole block and going into War of the Spark, I think we're starting to see that they're going to try and shift away from the classic format of Ravnica. I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to see the plane of Ravnica once more. And when we do, it's going to be completely different. In War of the Spark, we had that uncommon cycle of bonds. We take a look at the bonds, they have two of the guilds combined together into one spell. This to me is a hint. The next time we see Ravnica, dollars to donuts, it's going to take the place of the new shards block, three color combinations, and we get to see how the two guilds can form a pack together. Who knows what the next Ravnica set will be, but I certainly hope that we move away from the two color guild combination. But before we move away from Ravnica, I do want to talk about the aesthetics of the plane. It stayed mostly the same throughout time the city look, but the one thing that has changed is the idea of the seasonal shift. This last time we saw Guilds of Ravnica, the art and the feel was very autumn-like. Take a look at Affectionate Indric, or as I affectionately like to call him, Hug Beast. You can see the wonderful fall foliage just surrounding this large Indric-like character, and then you get an adorable guy who hugs too hard and it pushes off the building. Anyway. That's just my love for affectionate Indric. But the seasonal changes between the Ravnica set, the idea that it's autumn right now, it tells us that it's the dying of the summer and the spring to make way for something new. And if I were to make some prediction, I'm really hoping that it's gonna be three color combinations. Maybe we can play off the gates or different kinds of gates, looking at fixing in a different way and maybe the colors can have more hybridization and I don't know. Who knows what it is? I don't get paid to design, but if I did, magic. Feel free to take that idea and add it to the board. Let's go away from the Ravnica set. We're going to move past Zendikar just for one second, but let's go ahead and move now to a set that we all know, we all love, and has been talked about before. Let's talk about the Plane of Innistrad.
what can be said about Innistrad that hasn't been said by infinite number of other mainstream magic content producers? We know that this is a set that's oozing with top-down design that permeates throughout every single card in such a rich and contextually knowledgeable way. You know what this plane is all about because of our built-in knowledge sex, and that is such an ingenious ploy by the R&D of Wizards to make us have an emotional connection with the cards. But we're not talking about the sets in themselves, we're talking about how the planes change over time. When Innistrad came out, and I've talked about this before on previous podcasts, the idea of such resonant top-down design, not just with individual cards, but the entire plane, was a revolution in itself. So what happens when we return back to Innistrad? The Hell Vault open, Avacyn has been restored, the angels flying around everywhere. What do you do now with this horror theme after such a rebirth of such in this plane? Well, the answer was simple. Add some secret and some mystery to it. One thing that seems to be consistent with each time we visit these planes for another time is that there is an event, an instance, that makes us feel the need to come back to the plane. As I mentioned before with the Mirrodin block, we knew that the Frexian invasion was a frame for us to re-see the plane in a completely different way, leading into the third set where we didn't know if the Frexians or the Mirrens were going to end up victorious. A brilliant stroke that made us even more invested in the plane itself. So what about Innistrad? Well, they left the same idea of the investment of what is to happen next with the plane. Why are we going back to it? A shadow looms over it. And what shadow was it? The flying spaghetti monsters known as the Eldrazi. They're not very subtle in the wielding of their abilities to exist throughout the plane. You could see hints and little tweaks throughout the entire set, be it in Jace's investigation clues or different artistic motifs or the way the world just felt a little bit different, plus going to that idea of the aesthetic, that we were investigating the eldritch horror element that plays into all of us. The Lovecraftian horror themes were now present in the plane of Innistrad, a fresh new take at looking at horror from a completely different way. A really wonderful take by the Magic R&D and Design teams. So aesthetically, it had the same horror feels, the same idea of a plane that's just a little bit on edge, the humans not feeling quite comfortable, making us feel a little bit disconnected from the plane itself. It gave you an emotional connection as a human in a world that clearly the humanity is not the strongest element. And now we had to deal with these great behemoths from the blind eternities? Um, okay. Paint me frightened. But what about the gameplay? How do you come back from such a crazy, brilliantly strong created limited format in the original Innistrad block to create something that still is as strong, but yet also has some kind of resonance and can define itself in a different way? Well, the idea was delirium and the usage of madness. Madness, of course, playing back into that Lovecraftian horror sense, and of course, the looming of the Eldrazi. So the mechanic 
really lent itself into hinting at, hey, this is kind of what's going on right now with the plane. And then the idea of delirium. We're still playing into that graveyard sense, some of the most satisfying elements of the original Innistrad block. Being a horror-themed set, you can go into the graveyard and really play with the graveyard and the sense of death, rebirth, things being worth more than just what is on the live side. Real fun take, but now we have Delirium, where we're counting the card types. And then we have the investigation playing back into that same thing we mentioned before about a mystery, what's happening, until we get to the second set in the block, the Eldritch Horror set, the Eldrazi Moon. Now we get to see how the plane itself has completely shifted. And I personally loved some of those mechanics in the second set. I might argue that this is possibly the strongest second set in any given block-like-esque kind of feel. I don't know how you define the two-set form in that particular timeline since blocks used to be made up of three sets, but as the second set, I thought Eldritch Moon was brilliant. It played into some of that gross, ewy, and makes you almost feel like the entire plane is just sticky. And you don't want to touch it, but you can't stop from looking away as cities emerge with militias creating this ridiculously gross-looking walking area. Ugh. It almost gives me just goosebumps thinking about it, but that visceral feeling is such a high to chase. Ugh. So good. It was so good. So I'm way on board with the way that we went from the first set to the second set. And now we have two instances of the story evolving along the plane and then mechanically giving us a way to define it in a new and more interesting light. Now, I'm not going to define one set of Innistrad as being stronger than the other in gameplay sense. I'm willing to say that they're just strikingly different but let me just shorthand a future episode and putting the two head to head in a kind of showdown like element but I would still give it to the original Innistrad for great gameplay great aesthetic designs but still a really respectable showing for bringing back a block and a plane that is so beloved by many of the magic community but let's move away now from the Innistrad block and go back to where this whole episode started. Let's talk about the plane of Zendikar. Well, as I described in my previous episode, the Zendikar block means a lot to me. It was my first GP experience and the <laughs> time went very, very well. It was also a moment when I had a lot of the core of my friends together. And it was also the moment where I made friends that I will have with me for the rest of my life. So I have a lot of fond memories of the Zendikar block, despite the fact that it was lightning fast in its limited format. Boy oh boy, if you ever start with a Step Lynx, Plata Geopede, or Vampire Nighthawk, you feel like you have done something right. So understandably so, returning back to the plains where lands ruled the world, we were excited. Battle for Zendikar came out, and it was very different. The gameplay was strikingly different, and I guess the one thing that kind of carried over between the two sets is that green was not very good. 
near unplayable, in fact. And what was particularly different about Battle for Zendikar? Well, as we mentioned in the Innistrad block previously, there was an invasion happening. The Eldrazi had come to try and take over the land and do their flying spaghetti monster thing. And so many of the mechanics revolved around how do we make the identity of these pasta monsters feel like something that could be sinister. And in a different way than in Rise of Eldrazi. And with different mechanics that weren't Annihilator. So then the idea of the processors came taking advantage of the exile zone and using your opponent's exile zone as a resource played very uniquely but also was kind of awkward in its execution and one thing I really appreciate and once more I'll drop this if any of you are into game design or like to see how some of these things were made for what particular reasons go check out Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work podcast it gives you great insight on some of your favorite cards and can sometimes hint at the future. Kind of fun. But when I listened to his lessons learned for Battle for Zendikar, I guess one of the takeaways that I really took from it was the idea that in the newer Zendikar, we moved away from the exploration feel. Think about the Zektar Shrine expedition or the quest for the Holy Relic, the buildup enchantments, the thing that you had to accomplish certain things before you got your reward. I think I really did like those little touches more than I really thought I did with the original Zendikar block. And that being missing from the battle for Zendikar block, well, it just kind of felt lackluster. But being said, I did enjoy Oath of the Gatewatch. That was a time that I really got to play a lot with. and. It was very fun to play cards like Oblivion Strike, and I forget, the 1-4 Flying Vampire that when it taps, you gain a life, or something like that. I don't know, but that whole allied new take on it was pretty cool. Zenikar Block has always been defined by its lands and the allies, so what are we going to see when we return back to Zendikar later this year? Well. As Mark Rosewater says, I think he's going to return back to that adventuring, the pioneering feel, going into the jungle, discovering things. And I, for one, am particularly excited to see that. So, how do we manifest this? Well, I think there's a couple predictions I'd like to leave on the line for the future Zendikar block. Number one, I don't think we're going to see fetch lands in this next set. They've had new lands, but I would maybe take some kind of look at something else that might be fetchable like I know we want to keep pioneer and standard and some touches of modern for whoever still cares about that format well we want to make sure that it's not overrun by crazy powerful and expensive lands so I'm willing to bet we'll see a whole nother cycle something that might be manland-esque or maybe some kind of fetching type thing, but we'll certainly see a new cycle of what might be exciting lands. That should be something pretty cool. Now, I also think that we might be getting a callback to the expeditions or the box stoppers or the, the seat cards. 
because if you don't remember, the original Zendikar block brought to us the expedition cards, the very super rare drops, where it was maybe like one in every four cases, had some kind of old school classic reserve list dual lands, candelabra of Thanos type C card, like little bits of treasure that you found in random packs. Oh, it was so cool to be at the pre-release where there was two, three hundred people at midnight and someone opens an underground sea and it is this crazy moment of extravagance. I hope they do come up with something because the original Zendikar was that moment and then the later Zendikar block was where they brought that back with the showcase cards. So I'd like to see that come back in some way. Something that might be reasonable, not completely over the top, but something that would make us excited to open up packs again. And let's face it, Magic has really re-upped our ability to open up packs. Look at the collector boosters. For all that it may have really shaken up the Magic economy in recent history, in a few years, it's all going to level out. It's going to be a drop in the bucket of what right now is a pretty great time, particularly for Magic Limited. But we're missing one more plane. And what plane is that? Well, it's the plane that we are currently on, the Theros plane. And we're going to hold off for just one week before I do a deeper delve into the contrasts between old Theros and new Theros. What makes this current set feel so significantly different than the older one? What are some important lessons learned that we can take a look at that Theros set? But before we move and close out this episode, a few particular takeaways about when we revisit planes. Well, things that are important is that we have that aesthetic underlaying kind of feel to it. I think the most successful returns are those that look at what was in the original set, play into our classic sense of it, but then have the ability to turn it on its head. But that doesn't mean necessarily that mechanically it should feel the same. We should have some reason to want to return, but something that makes it feel fresh and new and invigorating. Take for example the Shadows Over Innistrad block, the idea of a weird, strange, on-its-head type look, and then not only do we get more transform cards, but we get these merge cards, the emerge things, the things that combine together. It has the combination of aesthetics mixed with mechanical changing that really made us love the original Innistrad block with the transform mechanic in the first place. Contrast that with the Ravnica block and the repetitive nature of the guilds. I would love to see something more along the lines of what Shadows over Innistrad did, or Scars and Mirrodin for that matter. And speaking of which, if we ever get to return to some plane and it's turned on its head, I want to see those Frexians again. Let's bring those evil, evil, evil creations back into the world of Magic the Gathering and see what we can do after we haven't really seen them for over a decade. Oh, and one last thing before we close out this episode too. Where would I love to revisit next? Now, I know it's a little recent, but please, let's go back to Eldraine. I still stand by Eldraine. I don't think that that set gets its appropriate due because 
in the time of magic we had cards like Field of the Dead and Oko was such a dominating presence. Once Upon a Time itself was really changing the way that the game was played and lost some of its variance. I just think it's so unfortunate that Throne of Eldraine got a bad rap when it came to the limited format. Not to speak of the whole magic arena and 15 merfolk secret keepers in every single deck. But I want to go back there. I want to see what these fairy tales look like. Just in the same way that the Stephen Sondheim classic musical known as Into the Woods kind of turned fairy tales on its head. Maybe we can see what some of these fairy tales might look like in the nighttime. Maybe a plane or two merge. What happens if Innistrad and Eldraine find a way to merge planes just like Wrath and Dominaria? Or maybe Eldraine is where the Phyrexians stage their next invasion. But most importantly, Watsi, I want to see Cassia. What is our Cinderella in the magic universe? What does she look like? What does she do? You hinted at her in the Crystal Slipper, in the Midnight Clock, in the carriage. Let's see what she might look like in the world of Magic the Gathering. And the second you print her, that is the second that she becomes my newest general in Commander. But that brings us to the end of this episode. And all of my unlucky lounge rats out there, I want to know what you think. Did I maybe look at one of these revisits in a completely wrong way? Am I off my rocker for kind of having a little bit of disenfranchised feeling to the return to Ravnica sets as time went on? What plane would you like to see revisited next? And where should the Phyrexians come back to? In any case, find me on Twitter, Draft and Draft Corey. Find me on my Patreon, Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. And of course, check out all of Believe's podcasts, wherever you download your podcasting fun or at Believe.com. Well, that brings us to the end of my bottle, and so we've reached the end of this episode. So until next time, all my lucky lounge rats, go out there and make some magical memories for yourself. My name is Corey, and we'll see you on our next episode of Draft and Draft. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.